Hi, before we get started today, a quick announcement. The second annual Canadian Advisor Tech Expo is being put on by the Financial Planning Association of Canada this year on March 14th to 17th. If you are a Canadian financial advisor or in management or an executive or just interested in what advisor technology is out there, I highly recommend you sign up. Tickets are on sale at advisortechexpo.ca. And now on to today's show. Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Rohit Mittal, CEO of Stilt. Stilt is an online lender that specifically targets immigrant and underserved populations who have very specific challenges when trying to obtain debt and credit. And with that, here's my interview with Rohit. Rohit, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So Rohit Mittal of Stilt, tell us about Stilt. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Rohit. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Stilt. And Stilt is a fintech company focused on immigrants. We started six plus years ago with one primary insight that when immigrants move to a new country, they don't have a credit history or a credit score. So it's very difficult for them to access financial products. And that's why we built Stilt. Uh, I moved to the US 10 plus years ago, faced similar challenges. And that was the company is born out of uh, personal experience. Over the past six plus years, we have served immigrants from 160 different countries. We have given hundreds of millions of dollars of loans, and we have tens of thousands of customers. Now, Stilt is a team of about 30 people. We are primarily based in the Bay Area, but the team is remote. And yeah, we are continuing to serve the immigrant population. And recently, we also launched a new product called Onbo, that's O-N-B-O, where we leverage all the infrastructure that we built at Stilt to help other companies serve their their target markets or underserved population. So yeah, that's what we've been doing. All right. So a conversation near and dear to my heart in many cases, both coming from an immigrant family, but also at the same time, you know, having clients who've who've similar to like similar to you, moved to the valley, have these incredible jobs with incredible positions. But at the end of the day, if you, you know, if you buy a house, if you have the equity to buy a house, getting a mortgage ain't difficult. Getting a credit card is borderline impossible. And everything else is somewhere in between. So when you think about the valley, it is such a uniquely odd place for that to happen, given the amount of wealth and the amount of income being generated there, right? And people moving right. there from all over the world with their skill sets that are desperately in need. Yet, meanwhile, the right. banking system hasn't evolved to accommodate. So tell me your personal story. So how did you, you know, you, you clearly discovered a problem in the market, you decided to fix it, mm-hmm. give me your journey and how it how still came about. Yeah. So I moved to the U.S. about 11 years ago now. I went to Columbia University for my master's. So when I went to New York, I the first thing I tried to do was rent an apartment. And wherever I went or whichever landlord I talked to, nobody offered me an apartment. The first thing they asked me for is like my credit score, my credit report. And New York has this weird requirement of 40 times monthly rent as income to rent an apartment. And I had none of those things. I didn't have like a large 12-month deposit, especially coming from India, you know, mm-hmm. paying a Columbia University salary with a loan. So it was all, all fairly difficult. I actually was crashing on a couch of a Columbia alum for multiple weeks while I was trying to rent an apartment. And, and that that experience stayed with me. Eventually, I was able to fi- find someone who offered me a room in their apartment, also a Columbia University student a little ahead of me and had figured out all these, all these issues. So yeah, after I graduated Columbia, I worked at a company called Argus Information and Advisory Services that primarily built credit risk models for banks. So yeah. there I got to understand about the U.S. financial system a little bit more and why banks do what they do and really got into the weeds of banks' credit policy, which always starts with a credit score. So the first thing when you go to a bank, they're like, what's your credit score? And if you don't have a credit score, then you get put into this exception bucket. And now they have to do a lot of different things to give you credit. 
So in any case, so I learned all of those things. I worked at that company for a couple of years. Then I moved to the Bay Area at a company called Pop Sugar, where I worked on the growth team as a data scientist. And I, that for a couple of years again, and during this time, my roommate from Columbia, who offered me my first room, actually was in the Bay Area working at Amazon. So we got together and started working on side projects. And one of the side projects we worked on eventually turned to Stilt. And then we went through Y Combinator. We raised a couple of rounds of funding and just continued to build the company. So cumulatively, we raised $23 million in equity and about $350 million in debt to make this happen. But the core of the idea just started with our personal experience, or at least my personal experience of not being able to find an apartment in New York, mainly because of my credit history. And our first product, the first main use of the product was to pay rental deposits for others, yeah. international graduate students who were moving for their jobs, but did not have enough money to pay for that deposit. So that was actually just the first use case that we started with. And then from there on, we grew to serve all a lot of different use cases for international students and then to all use cases for immigrants. Yeah. That's so I mean, it's interesting. Your, your, your hero's journey here basically had you also see the inner workings of the industry before you decided like, oh, I can solve my own problem through my understanding of it. So yeah. So I mean, here's the problem, as you just stated, you know, you move from one country to another, your credit rating doesn't follow you. Incidentally, mm-hmm. apparently it is possible to transfer your credit rating from Canada to the US from one of the credit, the credit bureaus. However, good mm-hmm. luck getting it done is what I'm told. Uh, the last time right. I suggested that it turned into a very fruitless, fruitless effort. So and I'm, I'm, I'm to the point of absurdity, like senior level executives, like high level senior level executives at, at, at major major technology firms in the US who can't get a bloody credit card. It is, it is right. a bit preposterous. And it all comes down to the system is designed around the average person with a FICO score and a history. And you know, no one looks at the edge cases until kind of the fintech world came around and said, we can fix this problem. So, okay, so that's the origin of the company. Let's talk about how you solve that problem. So how do you solve mm-hmm. the problem? Like, first off, how do you figure out who to lend to? Because this is really about, right? So how, without a FICO score, how are you compiling the information to, to basically bootstrap one yourself? Yeah, there, I'll, I'll add one thing to what you said. There are a lot of these edge cases combined are tens of millions of people in the US. So immigrants mm-hmm. themselves are like 45, there are 45 million immigrants in the US, of which I think 2 million immigrant, new immigrants move to the US every year, right? So it's becomes a large enough population. And because it's a very small portion of every bank's overall customer base, they are not served as well by the banks. And when we started the company, we said immigrants are not an exception. They are actually the policy for us. So we built everything in our company focused on immigrants. What that means is as someone applies for a loan at Stilt, our underwriting is organized around immigrants, which means if you don't have a FICA score, that's okay. We look at alternative data sources like education, employment, international education, your international work history, your immigration status in the U.S., your potential income in the U.S., your savings rate, so on and so forth. So we created a list of all these variables that are highly indicative of someone's uh, credit behavior. Again, going back to my credit model building experience that was helpful. So we built some initial risk models and we started lending money to people. And as we started lending money, we got money back. We generated more and more data and then continued to improve our risk models to lend to these customers. Underwriting is one key portion of uh, serving 
this population. The other important aspect is acquiring these customers. Uh, so we built a very unique and different way of acquiring these customers, which is actually through content marketing. So we worked a lot on writing blog posts with specific information for immigrants that's helpful, useful, up to date, and that can actually rank on Google. So we now get 1 million plus unique visitors on our blog pages every month. That's 12 million unique visitors on our site every year. So content marketing became a unique way to acquire the customers that we wanted to acquire from all these, all this noise out in the world. All immigrants are searching for is content that's helpful to them. And they came to come to our site, our blog pages, and then they apply for a loan. And then we apply our underwriting model built specifically for this market. And that's how we continue to build the business and you know, dispersed hundreds of millions of dollars of loans to this population. Excellent. So, I mean, two interesting aspects there. One is the actual risk modeling and the other one is the content marketing. So let's talk about the risk modeling. I mean, it's it's funny. People hear this stuff. It's like, well, you're taking all this stuff's not conventional. And to a traditional, someone growing up in the traditional lending space, mm-hmm not having FICO scores and everything else. The reality is, is all your you know, FICO scores are just based on a series of content, right? A series of pieces mm-hmm. of information that's stringed together. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is basically saying, we can't get access to that. Let's mm-hmm. compile other data into, mm-hmm. into basically a different version of that. So talk to me about the efficacy of that. How has your mm-hmm. risk modeling worked thus far? Has it basically come in mm-hmm. comparable to that? Because I mean, one of the things that comes up in this podcast a lot is a lot of alternative lenders have basically ended up lending to parties that would never have gotten money before because their risk modeling has proven more effective than traditional models. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I think the if you really look back in the history and how the score, the first credit score was developed, it was a hidden trial of using different data sources to actually build the model. In I think in the 1950s or whenever the first model came out, it was Fair and Isaac collecting all this data and looking at performance of loans that they gave to people and then continuously just iterating on their model to to come up with a better score. And that's what came about to be today. Now, the world has changed completely. Now, there are a lot of different data sources that are available to you at low cost, that are consistent, that are reliable, that are scalable, and that are compliant. So now you can put together all of these different data sources that were not available when the original scores were created, and then you can create new scores based on that. And different companies have used different types of underwriting methodologies to serve the customer segments that they are going after. Like we are going after the immigrant immigrant market. So we collect the data sources that are predictive of an immigrant's risk score. Similarly, someone uh, focusing on maybe low income, middle income, US population will collect slightly different data sources that's predictive of that community's risk score. So every company has now been collecting different data sources and building risk models for their population. And because the cost and time of collecting this, this data is very low, it becomes super helpful to serve this segment that old school underwriting is not able to. And the banks, again, like they have the most, they have the biggest balance sheet. So they do the most lending and they are still stuck in their old ways. And it's very difficult for them to bring in new data sources to serve a new population. And that's where all these fintech companies take their cake. They acquire these customers in a different way. They underwrite them in a different way. And they they become really the main provider of financial products for for these new communities when the banks can't. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's you know the 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 treaded path that the conservative companies have gotten used to. It works. It's good enough. Why change it? And it's you know at the end of the day, 
if you think back, if all this data was as easily accessible in 1950s and is easily compiled and, you know, machine learning was a thing back then, it wasn't just punch cards. Reality is they probably would have used some of this at the same time, right? And they would have had more right. accurate throughout the time. So, I mean, all you're doing is basically starting over again with the a broader set of options, which makes perfect right. sense. The only thing I want to add there is uh, even the credit bureaus and these credit scoring agencies are also incorporating new data sources, although they are doing it very slowly. So if you think of rent payments as, as an example, rent is also a type of debt instrument that people pay on a monthly basis. So in theory, it should also go towards improving someone's credit risk score because these are big companies. They are just slow at moving compared to uh, fintech companies. Uh, but overall, new data sources are being incorporated in, in people's credit scores, and hopefully they'll, they'll be more fair in terms of allocating financial products. So let's now talk about how you marketed yourself. And that's with content marketing. Now, content marketing is something we discuss on the show many times uh, when we talk about advisor marketing in particular. Very powerful tool that involves a lot of upfront investment, pays dividends for a long time. I don't mm -hmm. really think I've seen a lender choose to use that as their primary method of, of mm -hmm. basically selling. Can you explain to me like what the thinking was around that and how, how effective it's proven itself? So as it's in the advisor relationship, uh, this advisory market, I think it's a relationship-based business. So you'd want someone to come in and stay with you for, for their lifetime and you continue to provide them advisory services. Lenders, traditionally, especially banks, view themselves as more of a transaction type business. So all lenders are trying to do is they're trying to get leads in the most efficient way possible, lend to them, and then pass them on to someone else like for servicing. But at Stilt, our thought from the beginning has been one of building long-term relationships with our customers. So we are not trying to you know, do a transaction one time with these immigrants. We are saying, come to us if you need anything, even if it's not financial services, and we'll try to help you. And that builds a strong relationship for long-term with, with our target market. And that actually works. So immigrants first get to know about us in a non-financial context. So they look at our content, they get to know about the company, they, they know we are legit, they become familiar with us. And when they need financial products, then they come to us and, and then apply for a loan. It has two advantages. One is of relationship building. Second is of positive selection bias in the population. If I'm going to a customer who's looking for a loan or if I'm advertising to a customer who's looking for a loan, in theory, they are higher risk than someone who's not looking for a loan, right? Like, so it's better to be in front of the customers when they are not looking for a loan. And that's what actually helped us in acquiring these high quality customers through content marketing. So, so a, lot of, a lot of this type of thinking went into using content as the primary channel of acquisition for the company. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, it is traditional marketing. You're getting mindshare. The difference is through content marketing, you're basically giving away information for free as a right. means of building up that client. So that's also highly effective in that question becomes like, is this the beginning of other product extensions you're looking to do? Yeah, so we actually decided, so when we started sell six plus years ago, very naively, we built everything in-house. What that meant was we actually went and acquired our own state lending licenses. We built a, a modified version of a loan management system, a payment system, a servicing system, underwriting system. We raised our own debt capital. So we built a full-scale lending company totally natively. And that ended up being a blessing in disguise. So it was painful to build and it, it took us a, a lot of time and energy to build it. But now as we are seeing this infrastructure of lending that we have built is actually valuable to other 
other companies who want to launch a lending product. So let's say you are a neobank focused on an underserved community. You can actually launch a lending product in a few weeks with the infrastructure that we used to build Stilt instead of building everything again on your own that we have already built. So we are we are fairly bullish on this embedded lending opportunity where we are using Stilt's infrastructure to allow others to launch their own product. And we have called this new product, new business line, uh, Onbo, O-N-B-O, where we are helping other companies launch lending products in a few weeks. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You built a platform, right? You all, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. a platform that you can basically repeat and and franchise out. So that makes sense. Who's the target market for this? Are we talking about traditional lenders who want to expand their lending capacity? Or are we talking about people looking for other markets, other underserviced verticals? Yeah, we see two or three different types of customers. By the way, the platform works both for consumers, like all consumers, not just immigrants. And it also works for small businesses. So a couple of different types of clients. One is one type of client generally has access to millions of customers. They have a large customer base. They are selling a certain product to their consumers. Now they also want to offer a lending product because it just helps them increase their lifetime value. And if you have a captive population, the best way to make money on them is to actually give loans. So that's one type of client. Absolutely. Right. So like, for example, if it's an investment management company, like they can offer margin loans to to customers or something like that. So people don't have to sell their portfolios when they are in need of cash. The second type of client that we are looking at is clients that want to offer buy now, pay later products in their website or in their app. Clients are purchasing, their customers are purchasing products from them, but they want to offer a buy now, pay later product natively to their customers so they can increase sales. That's another one. Third one is clients, fintech companies wanting to launch lending products, like a neobank that offers debit products now wants to help their customers build credit. And they may, to, to build credit, you may you actually need to lend to them and they may come to us to launch this product. So we are seeing these two or three different types of companies coming to us on the consumer side. And then on the commercial side, working capital lines is the most common use case we see for commercial companies. You know, working capital lines, I'm going to say, essentially, again, traditional lenders and traditional traditional borrowers don't need you for that. It's the alternative ones, which, um, right. you know, as we discussed many times on this, you know, lending, access to, to proper lending when you're a business is in many ways lifeblood to your business, especially if you're rapidly growing. So so in general, like at least again, so traditional lenders or alternative lenders basically all looking to do this or your fintech players already have some sort of place. So it sounds like you're you're kind of a little bit of everything. Like I mean, at the end of it, you're you're really an underwriting model, right? Like that's that's really yeah. the core of what you're selling, which makes sense, right? You you collect data on a bunch of people, and you'll be able to better you'll be able to more or less better model whatever it is they want to lend just because of this. Any uh, do you have any? I'm curious. Do you have any data supporting your efficacy versus say traditional FICO scores? Are you coming in? more conservative, lending to more, like how's it working? Yeah, at least on the underwriting side, we cater to populations where FICO score is not a good determinant (laughs) of their risk. So it's not directly comparable, but what it allows us to do, it allows us to offer high quality products earlier in their life cycle. There are a lot of products that try to take advantage of customers who don't have FICO scores by saying you don't have FICO scores, but that doesn't really mean that the consumer is high risk, which is especially true for immigrants, yeah. right? Like who have just landed in the in the country. So we are allowing customers to get high quality loans even before their FICO score is built. 
and Which later on when the FICO scored. The fun the FICO score kicks in, there's suddenly right. a better credit landing risk. So right. Yeah. Yeah. Sick this nice like nice feedback mechanism there. Works quite nicely. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So basically that is that's basically the model at that point. You're really primarily an underwriting model and you're targeting those two groups. So or you're targeting both the platform and the individual people. So curious, like you know, you said you started off by building this platform and you're kind of overbuilding initially, but then monetizing after, which is good. I'm mm-hmm. wondering, like thinking back, looking looking back at this thing, when you started out basically starting to put together these models, what jumped out at you? What happened in the modeling process or what data? in the modeling process ended up being important or more or more important than you thought it was going to be? And what, what surprises did you have along the way about stuff that wasn't going to be important? Yeah. I mean, I was a little biased because I, I did credit risk modeling and in my first job and I had, you know, some, some insights in consumer behavior because of that. What we realized, at least for the immigrant population that doesn't have credit scores or may not have a thick credit profile is how much their day-to-day habits are predictive of their risk score. So, what, as an example, if as a consumer, you are sending money back home, that's highly, highly predictive of your uh, risk. Like you are lower risk if you are sending money back home because to do that, you actually have to save money. You need to be responsible. You need to be a responsible person inherently and to send money back to your parents and stuff like that. Right? Like, yeah. So some variables like these jumped out at us. And if someone was like high income and sending money back home and like saving a little bit, with these two or three different variables, you can predict like 70, 80% of the address. And yeah, that was, that was fairly helpful and, and new to us. Yeah. I mean, I'm not overly surprised. I mean, I haven't heard the same thing in franchise models where a lot of franchisees consider the best, the best uh, franchisors consider the best franchisees to be people who have families, who have young families who need to support them because anyone who's, <laughs> Anyone who has kids and a spouse knows and feels the burden of providing for them, right? So there's there's a certain amount of discipline that is imbued upon most when when that kicks in. So it makes a lot of sense. So remit, global remittances are actually a sign of responsibility. It makes perfect sense. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So I think we covered it pretty effectively. I want to um, jump into kind of the final three questions I ask everybody then the positive note. So the mm-hmm. first question I have for you is if you had one wish for something to change, in your industry or the company as a whole, what would it be? In my industry, I just want regulators to move faster than they do. And I think <laughs> the, sometimes people ask me, what's the big, how can you get the biggest lift in consumer impact? And it's like, it's not what individual companies can do. It's what regulators can do. And if they can update their beliefs or move a little faster to help consumers, I think that's just going to lift everyone up. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and you're in the US, which has a general version to, to regulation and and government, but you know, it's it's been said otherwise that and I agree with it, is that regulate regulation can often set the stage for the great change that you need to happen, right? Everything from right. open banking to to privacy rights and whatnot. And it's funny that we're having this conversation after the, on the fact that yesterday was the day that, as we're recording this, that Grayscale announced that they're suing the SEC. So yeah, yeah I was uh, like, okay, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's uh, that'll be an interesting one. Anyway, so that's the first question. Second question is, what's been the biggest challenge to date in getting the company to where it is? Uh, like that's a difficult one to answer because the biggest challenge just keeps changing as the company keeps growing. Like to initially, date, to date. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but what we started with, like when we started the company, we actually put our own money on the line. We, the initial few loans were done with our own money. So getting some money to lend was the biggest challenge when we started the company. And then later on, it became scaling the company while managing credit risk. Right? Like, so it's lending is a lot of moving pieces around compliance, regulations, credit risk, debt capital, and the normal product experience type of risk. So 
managing all of these things is just uh, fairly complex. And at different stages in the life cycle of the company, you are focusing on one thing more than the other. And then the other thing get, gets out of whack. And then you you try to manage that thing. So it's like a whack-a-mole of all of these, working through all of these items as you're as growing as a company. So uh, I think managing the complexity is quite tricky for a lending company. Well, it, uh, especially a new one. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a reason why a lot of companies don't evolve your lending practices. It's because <laughs> changing is just as tricky. Yeah. And then the last question for you is, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning and fighting the good fight? Yeah, I think the opportunity is massive. I still think that fintech, like new age fintech is not as penetrated in the broader ecosystem. And there's a lot of positive impact that can be made on consumers and and businesses uh, in the future. And all these new technologies that are coming up are just going to accelerate the change. That's going to help both consumers and, and SMBs to have access to high quality cheap and efficient financial services moving forward. So that's the most positive thing is the rate of change of the industry and the opportunity ahead. Well, Rohit, thank you very much. Greatly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, also appreciate you taking the time to service in the service market because access to credit can often be the difference between success and failure in everyday life and in business in particular. So you're doing good work. Uh, I agree. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. So that was this week's episode of FinTech Impact. I hope you enjoy that. If you are someone listening to this who could benefit from Stilt, by all means, please check them out. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever is your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.